There are many stories in the Bible that often have had their true meaning or the deeper meaning of the story diminished. For instance, that one right there. Noah and the ark has been co-opted, become known as stuff you put on the nursery wall in your churches. It's become stuff that you make really cute artwork about and you make children's stories about. It's become stuff that, you know, the animals went in by two by two, the elephant and the camel too, and they all went into the ark to get out of the rain. Da, na, na, na. Or, you know, like the Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. Stop right there. But you see, you just proved my point. You just proved my point. Cute little songs about the story, right? Nothing wrong with learning Scripture and learning truth by song. I mean, most of our children, most of us, learned a lot of Scripture, a lot of truth by learning it in song first. But too often, the truth has never gone beyond the archiarchy. I think that I knew I had been taught, I had supposedly learned what the story of Jonah was, uh, the story of Noah was about many years ago. But it wasn't until I attended Sight and Sound and I saw the Noah presentation there that all of a sudden it went really deep. Now, granted, Sight and Sound does a really great job. If you're not familiar with Sight and Sound, most of you probably are. They are a large theater out in Lancaster, they do great productions on a number of biblical themes or stories. And, and so when they do Noah, they do live animals, which is really cool. We all think live animals inside is very cool. We never think about the people who has to clean up after them, but we still think it's really cool. And so for Noah, they do animals inside. But the thing that was really striking to me was that in the Noah presentation that they do, they let the darkness of the story come in. Because when the rains start coming down in the story, and the doors to the ark are closed. They let you hear the screaming of those who are beginning to realize their death. And all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, this story is so much about judgment. This story, it is about judgment. And yet, so often we stop right here, right there, with the emphasis of our story. Another one is this story. This also is a story. The meaning has gotten co-opted or gotten lost very often in the story of Jonah and the whale. Now, I don't particularly know any Jonah and the whale songs. Are there Jonah and the whale songs? Some of you are shaking your heads. That's okay. We're not going to sing them today, all right? But there are some, but again, this is kind of where Jonah and the whale Stops for many of us. And even for that matter, that's even the problem with the story. The text never, ever says the word whale. It says fish. It just says fish. And so you see how when we're taught a certain storyline, it doesn't really change. And therein is a little bit of the trouble. And so the deeper meaning and the deeper message is just often lost. Not only that, but in the story of the ark and the story of Jonah and the big fish. The, the other thing that happens here, too, is this. That's impossible. How do you get two of every one of them, just two? And how could you put them all on there? And where did all the food come from? And yada, 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 all right? 
And then the other one is this right here. Okay, I believe that a big fish could swallow a man, but there's no way a man could stay alive for three days. And not on top of that, then there's no way that the big fish is going to regurgitate a man on land. Impossible. Absolutely right. It's the point of the story, isn't it? That God is the doer of the impossible. And so if you pull out miracles, if you pull out the impossible from every Bible story, from most of the Bible, all you've got left is a godless Bible. Because I just got to say, and I've said it many times before, I need a God who is bigger than me. I need a God who can do more than I can do. I need a God who can do more than most anybody else I know could do. I need a God who is unfathomable, unimaginable, powerful, just amazing. Because it gives me a sense of security to know that it doesn't stop with me. It should make you feel better too. When you take all that out, all of a sudden... You have a godless Bible. But the truth of the matter is, is we have a God who is all about the impossible, a God who is all about miracles. And the fact that a God can make, who is all about miracles can make a fish swallow a man and keep him alive for three days, that just speaks to the sovereignty of God and his ability to orchestrate details of life. This morning, open up your Bible to Jonah, please. You're going to find it in the Old Testament at the latter half of the Old Testament, just a few books away from Matthew. So if you find Obadiah, you find Amos, you're almost there. If you find Nahum or Habakkuk, you're almost there. Jonah's right in the middle of all that. Uh, You can look to page 1249. It might be there in your Bible. That's where it's at in my Bible. I'm not sure. And this story is only four chapters long. I mean, you might even flip past the book in your Bible because it is so short. But it's a story that starts off with a bang. And it moves right through the story. And so it's really amazing how in this brief, brief story, God packs so much into it. Now, we're not going to, and because it's only four chapters, that doesn't mean we're going to read it. But I am going to walk us through it here in a moment and hit the highlights for it. And so it starts off in the very beginning, the very first verse. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The very second verse, it says, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah. Usually it's really great when you read, but God. That means that God is intervening and doing something really good. It's never good when it says, but, and it puts a man's name in there. This is usually not a good thing. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, let me just show you something. See, here is Israel right here. Right there. And here is Nineveh where Jonah was supposed to go. So obviously, obviously, although Jonah is a prophet and he does know about God a great deal, he obviously has decided that God has not made his way out to Tarshish because he's going to flee from his presence out there. Now then, and also, isn't it easy to throw stones at Jonah from running the opposite direction from God, although we do that a lot ourselves too, don't we? But you see here, he was called to go there. He has, he has decided, I'm going to go the furthest place I know of that is the opposite direction from where I'm supposed to be. I'll go to Tarshish. That's what he does. He does. He finds a boat. He, begins, he gets on the boat, and it starts its way out. God brings a great storm, one that is so powerful that even the seasoned sailors are terrified. And they've determined that the cause of the storm must be somebody that's on that ship, so they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. Now then, you're immediately there. For some of us, we're going to say cast lots. 
That sounds like kind of like Atlantic City version of God. Well, you know what? Casting lots was not an uncommon way of God speaking to his people, especially at this time. And so throughout the Old Testament, even coming into the New Testament, you find God speaking through the casting of the lot. So Jonah admits it's him. He tells them that, he, that they must throw him overboard to save him. But they don't consider that as their first option. So they try and roll ashore so they can save him and beat the storm. But finally, with great hesitation, they toss Jonah overboard. And the storm is stilled immediately. And as we know, Jonah becomes a tasty morsel for a very large fish. Chapter 2. Once inside the fish, Jonah begins to pray. Chapter 2 is nothing but a prayer. That's all it is. And really, if you look at the prayer and you compare it to Psalms, you'll find that he is reciting many of the Psalms that he has committed to heart. And so chapter 2, and not only that, but it's really interesting. When you read chapter 2, he is talking about God's faithfulness. He's talking about God intervening. He's talking about God's sovereignty and how amazing God is. Very interesting prayer. Even in that, that would be a great study of itself. And that goes, what makes a man in the belly of a fish praise God? That would be a topic for another time. But that's what he does. And then finally it comes to the very end of chapter 2, verse 10, and it says, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Chapter 3. Jonah has been regurgitated in a more agreeable mood. And he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches God's message. Very short message. Just like the book, very short. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all we know the message. And this message is heard and responded to. As a matter of fact, you finally found in in verse 9 of chapter 3 where it says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. And the chapter ends with one of the most miraculous revivals of all time. From the king to the animals, Nineveh turns. Sackcloth and ashes, repentance. And they respond to this message that God is upset with them. Chapter 4 is a dialogue between Jonah and God. Jonah, and, and it's not one, and it's just not what you kind of expect. Most men, when they see a revival like that, they would sit down on the side of the hill and they'd look out over and go, look what me and you did, God. <laughs> That's pretty great, wasn't it? And yet Jonah says, I cannot believe you did that. What are you thinking? This is exactly what I expected. When you first talked to me, when we were back in Israel, I I knew that this is what you were going to do. Because I know you. He says in verse 2, I know you. I know that you are a God that is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. I just knew this about you. And look where we are today. Here I am, up on a hill, overlooking this city, and they're repenting, and you're sparing them. And what does God do? He grows a plant large enough to shade Jonah. And Jonah sits and basks in its shade. But the next day, he appoints a worm to eat and kill the plant and leave Jonah exposed to the scorching wind and a blazing sun. And Jonah is angry again. As a matter of fact, he says, I am so angry I could die right now. And the book closes in a really unusual fashion. It is even somewhat abrupt 
Chapter 4, verse 10, it goes like this. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? We're over. It's done. That's the end of the book. Well, let's look at some comparisons. Let's look at some things here about this book really quickly. Let's pull some highlights out of it. For instance, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. You know, it's interesting that the sailors knew their only hope was a divine solution. They began to pray to their gods. Obviously, there are many, there are sailors on this boat from probably many countries or different faith systems. And so they're praying to their own God. And they're kind of like, they're kind of like going, one of these has got to work. And they just start praying and nothing's happening. Meanwhile, Jonah's asleep in the bow of the boat. They bring him up and say, what's going on? He says, it's me. The sailors knew that God was their only answer. Isn't that interesting? Verse 1-9, look at this. Verse 1-9. Jonah says this, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Isn't that interesting? I found that really a, thought, a, a thought-provoking comment for him to make. I fear the Lord, but even though I fear the Lord, I'm not going to obey him. I'm going to run as far away from him as I can. All the people in this book at one time or another fear the one true God. Jonah does it in verse 1-9. The sailors end up doing it in one sixteen. Look what they do. Then the men fear the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And then in Nineveh, chapter 3, verse 5. They as well. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Consider this also. Jonah is the only prophet to rebel but he is also the prophet with the greatest response to his preaching. Isn't that crazy? Nineveh was the greatest revival recorded in the Bible, even more so than the beginning of the church in Acts. And the reason why they say that is because you see there in in chapter 4, verse uh, 11, it says that 120,000 who do not know the right from the left. All the commentators, everyone believes that he's speaking about the children who haven't really come to this age of reckoning at all. So he's speaking about children who are young. So then you extrapolate from that, if there's families of five or so, you know, they would estimate that there's probably as many as 600,000 people in the city. And so when you speak about a great revival that went throughout the entire city, we're speaking about 600,000 people who have repented from sin and wicked ways and have decided they really need to seek God. That's a big deal. And not only that, but there's, this book is full of great intention. I mean, where you just see people doing things on purpose, where you see God making things happen, pulling the strings and saying, this is what I want to happen now. Now this is going to happen. Now that's going to happen. This is start with Jonah. Jonah had a great deal of intention, didn't he? I am going to go to Tarshish. I am not going to go where you want me to go. Jonah was very intent in his sin, wasn't he? God was very intent. Check this out. All these things that God did. Is God, in this story, he sent his word twice. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 1. He sent a storm. He stopped a storm. He sent a fish. He commanded the fish to throw up Jonah. He extended mercy to Nineveh. He appointed a shade plant. He appointed a worm. He appointed the wind and the blazing sun. All of those things are out there. The scripture speaks about God did this. God stopped that. God began this. God sent that. God appointed. Very, very much hands-on in this story. I love that about the story. So now then we have to ask this question. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Well, 
there are lots of theories if you go back through all the books, but the one that I believe that I can land on and I can feel comfortable with preaching to you and suggesting is his, is his desire not to go is this. At the time of Jonah, it was written in probably 785, 775 B.C. At this time, Shalemanzer III was the king of Nineveh, and he was in, had invaded the Middle East, including Israel. Not Judah. By this time, they had been divided. Israel was the northern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom. And by this time, Shalemanzer III had already come in and invaded most of the Middle East and established a large, large kingdom. And we know that King Ahab of Israel was killed in battle with the Assyrians in 1 Kings 22, 34, and 37. And we know that there are many Judeans that, that were captured, and there are many prisoners. And what they typically did, these are the stories, these are annals that were recorded. Matter of fact, they even, they, what they would do is they would record their battles and their victories and other stories on the stone walls. And so, for instance, they were, um, when they captured prisoners, they were often skinned alive stabbed, beheaded, impaled on poles. Their hands or their feet or their tongues were chopped off and their eyes were put out. They would resettle entire populations and then they would rejoice in everything that they had done to their victims and they would tell others about it. The Syrian kings bragged about it, so to speak, here on their etchings. So you see right here, this victim here is missing his hand and all of his feet. These are not ornaments, they're heads. Here's feet. This is depicting what they had done in this particular battle. Here's another one where they're recording how many heads that they've collected from their victims. Here's another one where, and you, you'll read about this in Scripture also, where they used hooks in the face of their victims to lead them out. And here, uh, and here that's the hooks, and here they were also blinding them. These were not nice people. Another conquest they read about was in strife, in conflict. No, here's another one. I'm sorry. I felled 50 of their fighting men with a sword. I, bent, I burnt 200 captives from them and defeated in a battle on the plain 322 troops. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool. And the rest of them, the, red, um, the torrents of the mountain swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their, I cut off the heads and their fingers, and I built a tower with their heads before the city. I burnt alive their adolescent boys and girls. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I filled three thousand of the fighting men. This is a different story. With the sword, I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off their noses, ears, and other extremities. I gouged out their eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living. Uh, I made one pile of the living, and one pile of heads. And I hung their heads in trees around the city. These folks came in town to make a statement, and therefore, why they were so feared. To what degree Israel had suffered these consequences by the time that Jonah is writing, we don't know exactly, but. It's obviously Jonah is well aware of what the Assyrians are, are, are capable of. He hates them for who they are and what they've done to others. He wants them to get what they deserve. He doesn't want them to get away with anything. Well, can we relate? Not about the Assyrians. 
But we have someone probably in our life or someone we even know about, maybe not even someone in our life, but someone we're aware of. Do we want them to get the punishment or at least the humiliation that they deserve? Charles Feinberg, in his book on the Minor Prophets, says, The heart of man naturally prefers judgment upon other men rather than manifestation of God's grace and mercy to them. There's only one person in this book who wants to see another person die in the book of Jonah. There's only one person who wants to see someone else die. It's Jonah. The sailors didn't want to execute uh, or take vengeance on Jonah for risking their lives. Think about that. You know, I just, I mean, is it not true? I know it's true. It's true that if you're on the road and you have your kids in the car with you and someone cuts you off and almost causes you to have an accident, you're upset with them for what? Risking your life. So you just think about this. Here's a boatload of sailors who are experiencing a storm of the magnitude they've never, ever seen before, and they found out it's due to this dude that's downstairs asleep right now. Yeah, I'm ticked. Right? What, what do you mean? Like, you, I've got family at home. Think about it. And tell me again, why is it that I'm, I'm about to lose my life? Because you don't want to obey God. Well, let me see. I'm still going to try and row to shore to save your carcass. Really, kind of like unexpected response, isn't it? This is just another case where we feel that we could dispense justice better than God. That's what Jonah's feeling. I know how to do this better than God. I'm going to take care of this. Jonah was more zealous about Nineveh's punishment than he was about God's mercy. We want God to be patient with us, but not with those of us, but not with those who hurt us. Man cannot bear grace of God to others. So think about Jonah. Consider what he was thinking and feeling. Perhaps the best way to do that is to think of someone or someones that have hurt you or someone you love. Think about if God told you to go to them and say, God forgives you. Turn to him now and avoid judgment. Avoid punishment? But are you not aware of what they've done to me? Do you not know what they've done to my son, to my mother, to you fill in the blank? And you... You want me to go to that person and say, God forgives you? Can you get a sense of why you would be on the way to Tarshish too? Jonah knew a lot about God. He knew that God was gracious and that he was compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and, 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 and willing to relent regarding calamity. He knew that about God, but he didn't reflect that about God. And it's such a difference between knowing about God and acting like God. It's such a difference between knowing about God and living life and treating others the way that God would treat them. He didn't do that. He, Jonah is like the Old Testament version of the older brother and the, and the son in, in the story of the prodigal son. 
You know the story, the prodigal son goes away, he wastes everything, he comes back, and dad says, let's have a huge celebration. And the older son says, what about me? And he's angry at the dad for celebrating the son, the brother. What makes us hesitant to see our Ninevites in our life get mercy? Think about it. Tell me that. What makes us hesitant? What makes us want to see judgment before we see mercy to others? Talk to me. It doesn't seem fair. Absolutely. It doesn't seem fair. What else? What else? Yeah, we want revenge. Yeah. What else? Oh, that's right. Absolutely. It sends the wrong message. If you let them get away with this, they're going to come back and do it more. Or the next person will come back and do it. That's right. And think they can get away with it. Exactly. Great answers. Yeah. Anything else? Cindy? Yeah. Yeah. We don't really believe that God's going to make everything right in the end. We believe that if it doesn't happen right now, in this instance, it's not going to happen. And therefore, it goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, you know, living for the dot for the immediate moment, as opposed to living for the line, which is eternity? Absolutely, yeah. You know, everything inside of us, everything inside of us screams, I don't want them to get away with that. I don't want them to get away with that. It's not right. It's not fair. Someone else is going to do it. They deserve what they should get. They should deserve this. They're undeserving of mercy because of what they've done. And so in our world, even in our contemporary society right now, we can think about the Bernie Madoffs and the Enron executives who just stole millions of dollars of people and put them, took all that they had to live on. We can think about the BP oil spill. Some people are just totally, you just, there's no way they should still be in business for what they've done. And then there's, then just recently, the thugs, you know, as they were called, the thugs who riot and loot our cities, the corrupt politicians and the police officers. One person in our discussion group this week said, the raging liberal women. And then two examples that I think especially challenge us are those who seem to, without any cause for thought, without any hope for stopping them, People like ISIS who flaunt the beheading and the torture of innocent people, even children, before the entire world with no recourse as we see it. And then let's draw it really close to home. Naya Parlor, the Philly mom who wanted to go to Baltimore and party with her boyfriend. So she took her 21-year-old disabled son, quadriplegic, with several palsy, and left him in the woods so she could go party. Does she deserve mercy? We want to see those who hurt us or who have hurt other innocent people suffer themselves. We we want them to admit they're wrong. We want them to say, I'm a bad person. I've done done bad things. 
And it goes back to what Cindy said a moment ago about, about seeing life caught in this moment versus seeing life caught eternal. It's not enough to think that, it, that, that that reckoning will happen in eternity. We want to see it happen. We want to see it with our eyes. We want to be able to relish that judgment and that punishment. We want to feel good. And so all of a sudden, their judgment and their punishment is now about me how I feel about what's happened here. When God says everything gets reckoned in eternity, when God says in this next life, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every man, woman, and child will answer for what they did in this life. Jonah was so right about God. God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is abundant in loving kindness. He he does relent regarding calamity. Now, how God tried to demonstrate his loving kindness and compassion to Jonah was so odd and yet so practical. He decides, okay, Jonah, we need to learn a lesson. And so I'll give him a plant. And I'll I'll give him shade from the hot sun. And you'll notice here in verse 6, take note of this. In verse 6, Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. That's what it says. That's the only time in the whole story he's happy is when he's comfortable. I mean, think about what's happened in this story. God sent a storm. God stopped the storm. God sent a fish. God had the fish throw him up. God gave mercy. He saw 600,000 people possibly, as many as 600,000 people repent from sin. All of that could be a little exciting. It doesn't happen every day. But when he has a plant that comes up and shades his old head, that's what made him happy. That's what he was happy about. It's even hard to compare that he's sitting on a hill overlooking a great massive city of, of all these people, and these people have decided to repent from their sin, and he's angry because his plant died. Feinberg, Charles Feinberg, in his book on the Minor Prophets, says this really well, and so I'm not going to try and restate it. In this passage here in verse 9, 10, 11, chapter 4, he says this. From verse 10, it is evident why a plant with its rapid growth was chosen for the object lesson for Jonah. If it had been a plant which grew slowly, he would have had to water it and care for it. In that case, the rebuke of the Lord would have lost its force. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. God was saying to Jonah, If you have become so attached to this plant because it served you and gratified your deserves, a plant upon which you expended no thought, no labor, no toil, no sacrifice, no care, no planting, no watering, no tending, no pruning, a plant of short duration which grows up quickly and is hastily passed away, shall I not permit my love and pity to flow forth without, um, to flow forth to multitudes of my creatures, the work of my hands? 
the crown of all my creative acts I've nurtured, fed, and provided for? Those who would never go out of existence? He says, was there ever such an irresistible logic? Was there ever such boundless love and pity? And yet it was all lost on Jonah. You know, you even have to remember that God was even willing to forego the destruction of Sodom for 10 people. Just 10 people. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate. When we talk about what our story is about, when we began this discussion in the sermon discussion group this week, we talked about, what is the story about? Well, we talked about, is it about Nineveh? No, not really. Unless you're one of the 600,000 who got mercy, <laughs> you know. But it's still really not about Nineveh. Is, is it really about Jonah? Is it about that a whale can swallow a fish? Is it about God and his unending mercy? Well, I think it is really about that. But I think that we can draw one other possible theme from the book. Can we possibly say that Jonah is the study of the heart of man versus the heart of God? That's how the book ends, abruptly, with the heart of God saying, why would I not care for this city? And why don't you care for it? There's no question about the depth of God's love for mankind, no matter how evil they are. You know that that does not come in here. No place at all in the story does it come in and say, you know, I know they're really bad, but I'm going to forgive them anyway. Instead, the story is, I forgive everyone the same. Even the, and matter of fact, think about it. Here is the prophet of God. The prophet of God. And even in his rebellion, even in his selfishness, God still has mercy on him and gives him the plant. And not only that, God still has mercy on him and doesn't just zap him when he got on the boat to go to Tarshish in the first place. Or when he jumped off the boat into the water and let him drown. Or when the fish swallowed him up and just let him be digested. Or when he went into Nineveh and they said, oh, look, it's a Hebrew. Let's do to him what we did to the other ones. None of that happened. He got mercy in every single one of those situations, even to the very end, when in God's face he says, you're wrong to save them. And God still gives him mercy. And then on the other hand, is the Assyrians. Evil, violent, defining it for their day and time. And God gives them mercy. Our hearts, though, our first instinct is to judge. We tend to be judge, jury, and executioner too often. And mercy is so often the last thing in our minds. So, who is the story of Jonah about? The Ninevites? Jonah? The mercy of God? Or you? Is it about your heart that longs to see justice displayed? 
dispensed to those who really deserve it and doesn't realize that you're sitting under the shade plant that God provided. And in the moment it's gone, we're angry about it. Where did it go? I think that that's a good place for us to be, is to see that we are the Jonah in the story and that God is at work around us in so many different ways. Boy, this is me. Y'all can, if y'all want to, y'all can take a pass and I'll just say that story is about me. That God is at work around me and what upsets me are the things that make me take away my comfort. The story is that God still gives me mercy. And it's when receiving that that I ought to grow in understanding, like, that's pretty amazing. And what he gives me, I ought to turn around and give to others. And so every single one of us, let's not talk about ISIS. Let's not talk about a, a bad Philly mom. Let's talk about me and you. Let's talk about the person this week who stabbed you in the back at work and took away your promotion or took away your, your, your accolade of some side. Let's talk about the child or the parent who's done you wrong. And God says, that person deserves mercy from you. That person deserves for you to go and say, it's okay, God's merciful to you. I know what you're going to say to me. I know you're going to say, well, what about like the consequences? That's not your job. It's not your job to make sure consequences happen from their sin. It's your job to dispense mercy and forgiveness. It's your job to go to them, those who hurt you, those who make your life difficult, those that you don't like, those that you hate, God calls you to them. God calls you to them. And when you don't go to them, you're on a boat to Tarshish. What's the Lord saying to you right now? Who is that person? And get gut honest with yourself. Are you boarding a boat to Octarshus right now? In your heart, in your mind? With all the reasons why you don't have to do what he's telling you to do. Because I bet you every one of us are thinking about that one person that God says we need to go and forgive. And I bet you most of us are looking for a boat to Tarshish.